Hi, this is Alexander Sadek. I used to play Dr. Bashir on Deep Space Nine. And you are listening to Trek Untold. Welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. 2020 has been a crazy year for me in this podcast. I've had the opportunity to chat with a lot of professionals in a variety of fields whose work I've admired very much, and it's been a wonderful year for me being able to highlight many of these folks who don't typically get the spotlight they deserve. That said, even though the motto of this show is to showcase the people who aren't in the opening credits, I've broken that rule a bit this year. And you know what? I'm going to do it again because rules were made to be broken. If you don't believe me, ask pretty much any Starfleet captain who's broken the Prime Directive again and again and again. Today, we are joined by the man who played Dr. Julian Bashir for all seven seasons of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Alexander Siddig. He's in a new movie that comes out on December 18th called Skylines, which is the end of the Skyline trilogy of sci-fi films. And in this movie, Alexander plays General Radford, and we're going to spend a bit of time discussing Skylines and what's going on with that series. But of course, this is Trek Untold, so we're going to have plenty of Star Trek Deep Space Nine stories to discuss today, including a few notable episodes and guest stars he worked with, along with some other great stories from different moments in his career, and the usual obscure things that I like to dig up here on Trek Untold from people's pasts. That might sound very ominous, but trust me, it's not. It's going to be a really fun one. You may also remember Sadig's appearances in other shows and films like 24, Game of Thrones, Kingdom of Heaven, Clash of the Titans, 21 Bridges, Merlin, Poirot, and Gotham, to name a few. And I have to tell you guys, I don't think Alexander Siddig has aged a single day from when we last saw him on DS9. I'm pretty positive he's some kind of vampire who just puts flour or something in his hair to make himself look a bit older, but otherwise, he looks and sounds almost exactly the same as he did over 25 years ago. Alexander is intelligent, charming, charismatic, and best of all, one of the most down-to-earth and friendly individuals I've had the privilege of speaking to. So get ready for an hour with Dr. Bashir here on Trek Untold. No augmentation needed. Now, before we start this week's episode, I want to ask you, are you following Trek Untold on social media? If you're not yet, please make sure to check out Trek Untold on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook so you can get the latest updates on the guests we're speaking to each week, along with all sorts of other great things we show. If you've been enjoying this show, please consider supporting us by checking out our merchandise on teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold where we've got mugs, t-shirts, cell phone cases, and all sorts of other crazy stuff you can buy to show off how much you love Trek Untold. Or please consider supporting us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold. We've got a few different benefit tiers that help us out and give you a little something extra each week for the show. If you're a new listener or a regular listener who hasn't done this yet, please, of course, don't forget to subscribe to us whether you're watching us on YouTube or on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or any other audio or video platforms you might find this show. And if you've been enjoying Trek Untold, whether it be the audio version or the video version, please make sure to leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're checking out the show. Or if you're watching it on youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday, make sure to leave a comment and give us a thumbs up. Those little tiny things that'll take you a few moments to do will help this show out for light years to come and ensure that other people are able to find Trek Untold and give it a listen. And if you're a member of this audience who has already done one or several of those things already, thank you so much for your support. And if you haven't had a chance to do any of those things yet, 
We still thank you very much for choosing to listen today to Trek Untold. There's a ton of other Star Trek podcasts out there, and there's only so many hours in the day, so we really do appreciate you choosing this one to check out for the time we're spending with you now. I'd also like to make a quick shout-out to our sponsor at Triple Fiction Productions, who makes some amazing 3D-printed Star Trek-inspired dioramas and props for both Star Trek action figures and Star Trek fans in person. Whether you're a cosplayer or a toy collector, there's plenty of stuff to check out from Triple Fiction Productions, but you're going to hear a little bit more about them later on. So without further ado, let's begin this week's episode. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold, and now joining us on the opposite side of the screen, Trekkies know him best as Dr. Bashir from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. We know him today as Alexander Siddig, because that's his real name. Uh, Alexander, how's it going today? <laughs> Very good. Thank you for asking. <laughs> Not bad at all. How about yourself? I'm, I'm doing, I think, a little better than you are today, because you've been doing media calls for all day today, so I know you're I have tired. back-to-back, back. yeah, media calls all day, back-to-back, back. but this is, it's fine, it's a good, it's for a good cause. <laughs> it is, yeah, because we're going to talk first about a new film you're in, that's called Skylines. This is the finale of the Trilogy in the Skyline series, so it started back in 2010, we're wrapping up here in 2020. Uh, did you know much, actually, about Skylines before you took this role? Nothing, not a thing, not a Scooby, and didn't have a clue about what was going on. For those who don't know what Not A Scooby is, it's uh, Not A Scooby-Doo. It was a really, a very interesting project to get through, the, you know, the mail. Um, I, uh, my agent sent it to me and, and said that they'd love to consider me for this, uh, this role. And uh, I read it. And I was like, whoa, I haven't read a script like that for a long time. Um, and, you know, I don't th- I've never been in a movie like this. So that really appealed to me because um, those sort of movies aren't getting made anymore. Very, very rarely. They used to be made quite a lot in the 70s and the 80s. I'd say there's definitely some perfect casting here because you play General Radford. He's this charismatic. It's pretty much the part made for you, to be honest. I can't really think of anybody else that could do this part as well. Uh, and of course, you. you always look good in the uniform. But uh, can you tell us about yeah, love, General Radford? I love a uniform. <laughs> <laughs> can you tell us a bit about who General Radford is? He's um, basically the head of the resistance uh, on, on uh, Earth. Um, and uh, through one thing and another, an invasion and then a pandemic, there's a bunch of aliens who are getting really ill. They've been, they have been... I guess domesticated is the best word I can think of, um, but they're about to revert, and uh, because of this this disease. And if they revert, they far outnumber the humans, and they'll be in a lot of trouble. Um, so they've got to find a way to 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 turn the clock back uh, and stop them reverting. And and basically, General Radford, who is patriarchal figure, you know, uh, your standard general uh who uh has responsibility he feels political responsibility over everything on the planet um, and uh he gets the team together of crack troops um to go to the alien planet um called cobalt blue uh which is too far away to travel to by in any normal way but they've figured out through a wormhole that they can get there in record time um and the only person he needs for his crew uh, is this one woman who is, I would say, a half biracial alien and human called uh, uh, Rose, who played pretty amazingly, I have to say, by Lindsay Morgan. Um, and uh, so eventually he manages to persuade her and uh, then the everything kicks off. And that's where the movie truly begins. And you mentioned mm-hmm. Lindsay Morgan. She's a very underrated actress. She's really coming to her own, especially in Skylines. Uh, what do you think about the time that you spent with her? Oh, I was really impressed. Um, not she's a lovely person, but everyone's a lovely person. You expect them to be a lovely person. What, what she did that's really difficult to do, and I don't think 
I've seen it very often, um, certainly not in a, a, a movie, um, is to play an action hero from a, a, a as a woman, a, from a, a female action hero. Often this it's like fudge, a square peg into a round hole, trying to be too masculine, trying to do something that the gender doesn't, your gender com- conflicting, basically. Um, now that's not to get into a whole gender political argument, which is poo, minefield. Um, uh, but although I'm incredibly sympathetic to to, to that argument, uh, I just don't have the, the ammunition to really c- come on one side or the other. But I do think that in term, Lindsay can be a, a steel bitch <laughs> and this absolutely charming person uh, at the same time. Which you know, not I don't I can't I, Tomb Raider not didn't make it. It was always the imbalance was not there, but she the balance is perfect. She is utterly credible as someone who would whoop your ass if uh, you got into trouble with her. And that's partly because she's a, an athlete and she does act brilliantly. So that does the charm side of it. So she's got it all. There's definitely some hints of Major Kira in there as well, for sure. Oh, yeah. Major Kira, and, yeah, absolutely. So I got to say, like, I watched the movie. I got to see an advanced copy of it. And uh, the visual effects are stunning in this. I was, like, really, really into those. Uh, yeah. What was your reaction the first time you ever saw those aliens? Ah, amazing. I mean, I saw them in in real life because they they we don't have the they didn't have the budget to 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 just do the complete CGI rendering for all of those. So those guys were wearing that stuff um, on stage, eight foot tall, and wearing stilts um, uh, with stuntmen inside. Very hot. Um, it was pretty amazing. I really they, they were they were awesome. Uh, the right use of the word, and it's uh, been a a really interesting curve, learning curve working out how to work with them without doing too much of this which camera doesn't really understand and uh, it was it was it was really cool i mean the whole thing the, the whole movie was interesting in the sense that it had physical sets so you're not working with tennis balls and pieces of ribbon which is what most people are working with in avatar or some movie like that it that's all just totally not there but uh, liam the director insisted on real sets and had a real feel to everything not only because we're it's a low budget film by most standards. You know, this is and it's the third release of a, fr- a franchise. Um, it's just, it would be unthinkable, you know, unless it was a huge budget, but he's done it with a low budget and he's got enough people who really devotees of the film to go, well, we'd like to see another one, please. Um, and I hope he gets to do lots more with lots more act- great actors. And this this physicality was really important for the the way we worked on set and kept the things, the spirit jovial. Because when you're working with nothing, it's just dispiriting after a while. You're just you're constantly imagining. The only imagining we had to do were certain tentacles and things that, that grabbed us, um, which um, was really actually incredibly hard to be grabbed by a non-existent tentacle and look like you're being grabbed by it was, was, was a challenge. Yeah, I love that there's a combination of the visual effects and actual practical effects here. Uh, it's almost seamless, too. And to say that this is low budget really just doesn't do it justice because it's really they know how to use this budget so effectively. It's it's for what it is and how much it costs to make this thing. It looks like a million bucks. Yeah, well, the secret to great filmmaking is to, to work with low budget, to work well with low budgets. Look at Jaws. I mean, even the first Star Wars, these things weren't, weren't made for big bucks. The, the, the budgets escalated thereafter. But um, you can make really cracking cinema. But also, the important thing is it, it, the, the budgetary constraints challenge everybody to come up with more creative creative solutions for things. So um, 
that that means a script that is has a, a really interesting genre perspective. In this case, it's a very mashed up genre situation. Um, it's re- reminiscent of the deeply satirical movies of the 70s. And not since then have, have these sort of movies being made. Roger Gorman, you know, fiddled around with this stuff. Um, Neil Marshall does does bits some some of this stuff, but not not so heavily reliant on the satire. So Liam done a major work by incorporating the finest elements, the really interesting elements of good sci-fi, which is to be satirical, to actually talk about things that are happening today, and to deliver it in an entertaining way that um, makes you laugh or cry or whatever it is you want to do in, in in the situation and that's been that's a pretty difficult thing to pull off and i was really really impressed when i saw it friday i only saw it a couple of days ago yeah that, that's a really excellent way that you put it it really is a throwback but with a very very modern twist so that's yeah. really cool that's something yeah. i did enjoy about it now, now i'm picking up on it now you mentioned it um and you know it's funny we talked about at the start of this interview how a big plot point to this movie is that there's a pandemic going on that's affecting these alien characters and uh this was done before COVID 19 was even a thing so it's kind of funny now that Anytime there is any sort of virus, we're just going to say it's current events. Uh, in this case, though, it seems like it just kind of worked out into being current events. It just had, it was just purely circumstantial. It was no it, it, a coincidence that we couldn't possibly have foreseen back in March last year when we were actually shooting it. Um, there's, it. It just was something that, oh, there's a pandemic. That's interesting. Cool. That's very sci-fi. Little did I know that it would become kind of gritty reality TV <laughs> by a year later. So yeah, I think all Star Trek fans are going to really enjoy this. I think you'll agree with me on that too. I mean, it's got a wormhole, so I'm already hooked. Yeah, it's you know what I think they just they'll they'll like it because they need it. We need it right now. We need to just go. Who I'm checking out. I'm going to watch a movie and let someone else do all the heavy lifting for the next couple hours, an hour and a half, um, which is what we need. You know, coming home from work or you've been on shift as a nurse or whatever your situation is right now. You can just ugh, unravel um, and it's not going to be too offensive and it's not going to really mess up your day politically. And it talks about issues if you're interested and if you're not, you can stay above it. And uh, it at the same time, there's a point, you know, once you've invested, like all of these sort of movies in the first 20 minutes and gone, right, OK, I understand what you mean. This is the world we're living in. And this is what happened in the last movies if I haven't seen them. And um, we're here. Now show me, and they push a button, and it'll show you, and it just goes boom. <laughs> and it's like, whoa. Uh, and it's, that's great fun. It's got the elements of, you know, aliens. I mean, you know, lots of different, different things in there. Um, but most, the thing I like most about it is the sense of humor. Yeah, Skylines is a lot of fun. And we're going to have links to that in the show notes for this week's episode because it's coming out tomorrow, or depending on when you listen to it, it's probably already out. So, yeah, make sure you Could guys check out. out Skylines. We'll talk more about it in a little bit. But uh, Alexander, yeah, I want to talk to you about a few Trek things today as well. But before mm. we jump into that, I was taking a peek uh, through your resume because that's what I like to do here. I like to kind of dig in the past. Sure. Uh, and I found one film that you worked on very early in your career that sounded very interesting. Uh, and that's Sammy and Rosie Get Laid. And I think that's oh, your yeah. first film. And it's uh, it's hard to find much on it, uh, unfortunately, these days. But it sounds like really interesting. It dealt with interracial relationships, uh, sexuality, culture, culture clashes. Uh, yeah, it seems like a real interesting film. Uh, what did you it do? It was. Um, it was a. Uh, you know, I, I was at acting school and um, my mom knew I wanted to be an actor. And I think it was through her because she was working in a theater and she said, well, if you want to act, get in, go and act. And I was like, OK, um, but I'm at acting school. Like, I'm not allowed to act, but apparently I could do this one thing. And that was be an extra for uh, two days 
uh, on in a party um, uh, in a, a, a movie. I can't remember his name right now, but he wrote, wrote My Beautiful Laundrette. And I think that was one of his follow-up films, Sammy and Rosie Get Laid. And it had Claire Bloom, who is a famous actress from back in the day in England, and one of the Kapoor brothers, an Indian, uh, wonderful, who was in a movie called Shakespeare Waller, which if you haven't seen it, is absolutely beautiful with Felicity Kendall. And I was like kind of starstruck by this huge Bollywood star who was there. That's and Shashi he was telling, Kapoor, by the way, for anybody who wants to check him out. Shashi Kapoor, very, very legendary and, and more so overseas legend. here in America. Absolutely. And um, so with these guys in it, I was just takes, eating up anything I could because I was a wannabe actor. So I just sat at the breakfast table and everyone was very friendly. And uh, Kapoor was like t- trying to give me advice about women, even though I had absolutely no idea how to do what he did because <laughs> I didn't have any of the charm that he had. And I was like, okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, it was great fun. It was really good. It was a, a, a two-day stint. It was an, as an extra, which normally I wouldn't advise anyone who wants to be an actor to to do, um, because it's a it's a lane that you can't get out of very easily. Um, once you're an extra, you kind of end up staying an extra, and if you want to cross the ropes, you have to do all sorts of cartwheels, um, and you need a lot of luck, and you already need a lot of luck to be an actor. So that was a fascinating two days of my life, put it that way. But I, I was really at school. Now, Roland Gift is also in this film. He's uh, from Fine Young Cannibals, lead singer in that group. Uh, were you there the day he was there as well, or one of the days he was yeah, there? I saw, yeah, it was a party where he was there. I mean, and he was like a huge star too. Um, it was, yeah, Fine Young Cannibals. I'm God, that really takes me back. I absolutely remember that. What an amazing voice he had. Um, I didn't see the film, to be honest with you. <laughs> it was probably a little bit, it was a slightly unusual film. It's a, you know, one of those unusual films that uh I, I i i wasn't i didn't get to see it I, that just didn't come around for me well, i'm glad you remembered it because it drove me crazy and uh well find uncannibals <laughs> reference you know the rest uh, so. <laughs> so i just wanted to ask uh, about 21 bridges because you were in that recently as well uh, i know you didn't yeah. share any scenes with chadwick boseman but i'm wondering if you had any memories of him at all from from your time on that movie you know poor old chadwick he came and introduced himself which was a pretty decent thing for him to do um hollywood stars are often very gracious and he is no different uh was no different sadly but he he has a big on had a big entourage and i was sitting there i don't know where i was on a chair outside a hallway in a scene that we were shooting that was so difficult for me so bloody literally i'd i i'd just been i had prosthetic on because i'd shot myself someone had shot me in the eye through a peephole in a door. Um, very, I don't recommend it and, uh, in, as a real thing. And I don't recommend it as an acting thing. It's very uncomfortable for a long time because you've got this wet goo on you for hours and they keep replenishing it because it dries up. So as soon as your blood starts to dry up, they go, oh my God, your blood's drying up. Here's some more. And it's just going into your underpants. And so I was sitting there on the chair, like looking like death warmed up. And uh, this big, entourage came in this group of people there was security people and there was makeup fluttering around and hair people and and it was uh Chadwick Boseman and uh I'd seen him you know uh in the Black Panther and I but I hadn't, I hadn't seen any of his other work but I was just amazed by him in a Black Panther and I loved everything it stood for and um and he just broke away from his group and came up and said hey just want to say hi really nice work you've done over the years and i was like that's very sweet he's like well have a good day 
And uh, he went, that was basically my experience of Chadwick Boseman until I heard, you know, like just with everybody else a couple of months ago that he sadly passed away and he must have been ill then. I just didn't know because you, you don't, that, 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 that kind of disease doesn't arrive and immediately kill you. It's, you're, you're fighting it for a year or so. Um, I know my mom fought it for several years. So it's, he must have known for quite a while. So it's a, very courageous to keep going and um, keep trying to make something happen, trying to encourage people to expand their horizons about the kind of people they're willing to accept. It's really amazing. Chadwick left us all just so many great gifts with his acting and just how much he, he kept going through time. That must've been so difficult to even do anything. So yeah, I, I'm glad you got to meet him. Yeah. I'm glad I got to meet him too. Trek untold will return momentarily. Trek untold is brought to you by triple fiction productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props, or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek-inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hello, everyone. I'm Armin Shimmerman. Perhaps you know me better as Quark from Deep Space Nine. As your favorite Ferengi, I'm here to promote a sale. It's not self-sealing stem bolts, but my new novel, Illyria. And the first book is called The Betrayal of Angels. Some of you may not know that aside from being an actor, I'm also a novelist. My newest novel is a mystery set in 1583. Its heroes are the historical characters of John Dee, who was a spiritualist, a book collector, and a spy. With him is an unsuccessful playwright named William Shakespeare. Their mission is to investigate a nobleman who happens to be Count Orsino from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. The book employs comedy, history, and fantasy to tell a page-turner of a story. It reads a lot like Sherlock Holmes or like one of my favorite shows, Homeland. Please check out my website at www.armandshimmerman, get the name right, .com, or you can get it directly from my publisher at www.jumpmasterpress.com. You can buy it either as a paperback, a hardback, or an ebook. So, why don't you check it out and judge for yourself? Or better yet, give it as a gift to someone. I know they'll appreciate it. Uh, disclaimer, no Latin accepted. We now return to Trek Untold. On a slightly lighter note, let's go ahead and jump into some Star Trek talk, because I know that's what a lot of our folks here today want to hear about. And, uh, Boom, bring it on! All right, let's do this. So... Uh, I'd like to ask you the first question I ask all of my guests on Trek Untold, and that's, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? 
my earliest memory of Star Trek will have been of Uhuru turning in her chair and a funny noise happening or something and her putting her finger to her ear and saying something to Captain Kirk. I don't remember the actual text, but I remember that vision um, from the original series because I would have been alone in my in my apartment, my mum, my mum's apartment. While my mum was at work, because I used to let myself in from school from a key hanging on a piece of string uh, in London and wait for her to get home because I got home at 12 and she got home at four or whatever time. Um, And uh, I would just sit in front of the TV and watch TV all day. And I got Star Trek sometimes and it was incredibly cool to watch. I just absolutely loved it. We had Doctor Who 2 and they were the things that I kind of really enjoyed uh, Doctor Who was totally different and Star Trek was somehow kind of shinier and a lot more exciting things happening. And uh, I, I, that was my, I was just, I was struck by this woman who was in, on the bridge because she seemed different to everybody else, even though there were lots of aliens and stuff. Um, she was the one that really, I was like, wow. And it could be that, you know, she looks African and I I'd probably only recently arrived from Africa myself. Yeah, it's one of the great things about Star Trek is that it really helped expand a lot of people's horizons and really show people what other folks looked like and that they mm-hmm. were, in fact, people. As horrible as it is to say that, uh, it did do a lot to really help expose a lot of folks to otherwise may not have even ever seen a person look like that before, up close and personal. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, that's kind of my, one of my missions, especially with the Muslim Arabic world, is to introduce people to those guys. And I take up a lot of roles with of those characters uh, over the years. And it's been just a pleasure to say, well, hey, I'll introduce you to one. Check it out. And obviously, you're not going to watch me unless you invite me. So if you invite me into your living room, I will try and please you for the next couple of hours. And um, more often than not, people are going, well, yeah, okay, maybe not so bad after all, these guys. Now, you've had some amazing roles in uh, Kingdom of Heaven and Morale. Uh, even 24, actually, where you're playing Arabic characters, but they're not like these horrible, evil stereotypes. Like, you're very much into finding these roles of Arabic characters who are, uh, there's more to them, essentially. Like everybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like an actual human being. Who knew? Like all of us, yeah. That's kind of wild. Um, yeah, so you try and bring human to every character you play. I mean, even General Radford is charming and charismatic, like you say, but he's a human and, and there's a human element, element to him. But even the, the bad guys I've played over the years, I've tried to just find the humanity in them and give them a sense of ambiguity. So people are like, well, maybe, you know, I might... But it, oh no 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 no! I can't make friends with him now. But there's that moment before when you go, well, maybe I could. He seems like kind of a nice guy, and that's interesting when you go because that's what we're like, isn't it? We are all really nice until you get to know us, and then there's some element of us that you go, ooh, whoa, wow. Normally, if you're in love, you know, you don't find that out until you're dating someone or in, you know, deep into a relationship with someone or parents you're living with for, and with teenagers for years and you just go well phew, i didn't see that side of you before but we all have both sides to us and it's a question of whether or not we're willing to accept each other given the fact that we all have both both sides and i'm obviously as i said a little mission is to introduce people to people they've found difficult to get to understand as being friendly or or, or nice sure they're terrorists but hey they're everywhere there are murderers too but um they're not all terrorists and not all murderers it's, it's a little off topic here but uh you were you lived in new york around the time of 9 11 correct 
I did. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I happened to be in Vegas, I think, the day before 9-11 um, at a convention. I probably would have been a, con- a Star Trek convention. I'm not sure. Um, but I can't think of many other reasons why I'd be in Vegas. And um, I flew out on the 10th um, and landed in England to the news that this was all happening. Um, I, I must have got to my, the plane probably landed about 7 a.m. And I probably got to my apartment at about nine and had the, you know, out of just tiredness and general fatigue, put the telly on about television on about quarter to 10. Um, and I think there was, I think that was probably around the time planes were doing terrible things to the World Trade Center. And my son was in New York at the UN, um, just nearby because he was at the U- United Nations school um, where he refused to learn French. They spoke French there, but he absolutely refused. It's un-American. <laughs> he was a kid at whatever age he was and uh, probably five um, and I suddenly went maybe it's a chemical attack and that's when I got scared and that's when I got on the phone I mean I, it was devastating to watch what was happening obviously but as a parent you just go to the next place it's like what could be worse than this what could be even worse than this and obviously chemistry was the chemical attack was the, poss- the worst possible scenario for me that they delivered some frightening virus um and uh, i guess it's a biological attack but they that i was couldn't get through on the phone for a day i think all the phones were down in the whole world <laughs> it was a one of the most shocking days but yes we were living there um but i was apart and uh, panically panicked because of the fact that i was hundreds of miles thousands of miles away yeah, I'm, I'm a New Yorker. I live in Queens, in fact, and I was in school when it happened. So I actually could see the smoke coming from my uh, my building, from my third floor. In oh. fact. Um, but yeah, the reason I bring it up is because I'm wondering, you know, we're talking a little bit about uh, your descent, your, your being Arabic and yeah. these roles you've had. And I'm wondering, was it hard for you to get roles after this happened, especially you know, like I've I've spoken with Eric Avari. I'm hoping to speak to Brian George at some point who you worked with in Dr. Bashir, I presume. And like yeah. they were telling me, you know, even then, for the most part, there was like a handful of actors who looked like them who were going up for roles and they usually weren't that great to begin with. Uh, did you have a hard time finding work? Not since Ridley Scott gave me a job. And actually, the first one was um, Vertical Limit, where Martin Campbell gave me a job. Uh, but I, that was before 9-11. But that, I played a, 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 a Pakistani uh, guy in that. And, but he had a lot of soul. He was a, he was a really gentle guy. Um, and I guess... Ridley probably saw that or something like it. I don't know where he got, I know I had to audition. So he may have seen the audition and been happy enough with that. But often directors will look at other stuff too, because they don't necessarily trust the audition, just the audition. Um, and it was a really important role in Kingdom of Heaven. Um, basically Saladin's right-hand man, uh, General Imad. And he, um, that was that was the first role that opened doors for me. And it was also very Ah, it was a lovely, it was just a really lovely guy. He got a chance to, especially after 9-11, when everybody was ready to hate, to pay respects to Saladin as the person who basically invented chivalry, um, was a big move for Hollywood to make, especially, for, and Fox Studios were very brave to do that so soon. Um, and um, yes, the, I played uh, Ibn Khaldun, I think his name was, in uh, a, a show called Spooks, which over here was called MI5, I believe. And then 24. Um, so I, I, I actually did get work, but it was work 
basically about Arab themes at the time because the whole world was scrambling to understand what was going on. Why? What was? How did we suddenly all hate each other so badly? And uh, what could possibly have started all this terrorism? And where does this? Be, where did it all begin? And why are we here? So I was the lucky one of the lucky ones who got the roles of the not the non-terrorists. I mean, they may have been terrorists, but they may have been ambiguous. They may have turned. They may have done something else. And that was what I was looking out for. Um, and I think that a lot of people had to play actual terrorists because there were a ton of those too, you know. And then Homeland came along and they had a ton of terrorists. Um, so I kind of have to avoid those shows. Not the shows. The shows are fine, but just those kind of roles. Um, otherwise, you're not doing anyone any favours. So that that was, yeah, it all changed, but I didn't have trouble finding work, I have to say. I didn't work a lot, um, but I did work. And really, the main reason I want to bring it up is just because we're talking about essentially sociopolitical topics here and how Star Trek has kind of always been on these things. You know, and, you know, there's a lot of fans who will say, oh, Star Trek is never political or whatever. Clearly, we're not watching the same show here. Uh, and on that note of politics and Trek, I'd actually like to ask you about uh, series episodes that people are talking a lot about these past four years. I'm sure you've probably talked about it before, uh, past tense. Yeah, and it's still such a, such a topical episode. I don't know what it's going to be not topical, but I look forward no. to the day when it isn't. Yeah, uh, but yeah. What do you remember about past tense? Those are a pair of very heavy episodes. Yeah, I mean, I remember it was, a, it was our, one of our first back to back episodes. We did uh, yeah. like a duet, duet. Avery was extremely excited by it, really interested in it, and that was very inspiring because he was our boss, frankly. Um, and we filmed a lot of it outside, which we don't often do um in the on the back lot in, in paramount and they you know set a lot of trash cans on fire and uh i kind of belittling it by saying that but that's kind of what it did it was kind of interesting to work in the middle of the night too we didn't tend to do that so we broke a lot of norms filming past tense and and obviously someone somewhere high up had decided this was important and we had to do it and it's probably ira it might have been might have been michael pillow at that time and we just and we shot the hell out of it, and we we really enjoyed it. Um, we enjoyed take, taking off the uniform. Weirdly, it was kind of fun to put on some other clothes and do what we thought was a gritty drama. Um, and I think it it was, and it was uh, you know astonishing to be in that position. I'm I'm very proud of it. I, I didn't have a big big role in it, um, but I was really I really enjoyed playing the ensemble. It was a normally. Deep Space Nine Star Trek episodes tend to focus on one or two characters and everybody else t- turns up for a, a hello and then they're gone. And then you get back to that character, whether it's Mars or Brian and Keiko or whether it's Bashir and uh, anyone. And that one was much more ensemble. So we, we really did all kind of have to be there and, and be together. And that was pretty, pretty special. Not since the pilot did we have that sense of commun- communal, this, we're going to carry this show together, guys, and get this over the line. So I really enjoyed that. And of course, the subject matter, you know, I was probably in my late twenties. So I was pretty vapid, vapid about that, all those subjects. I really didn't know much about it. It's like, oh yeah. Okay. I saw Hermes guys. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, wow. <laughs> it's really useless. And only since I got a bit older and had kids particularly that I went, Whew, this is a problem. We have to deal with it. This is something, this is more than just homelessness. And this is more, you know, this is, about all kinds of things that are actually systemic. The word that everybody hates right now because people use it about race and it's true, but the fact is it's systemic. And um, Star Trek deals with those subjects beautifully because it doesn't, it doesn't present them as a Republican or a Democrat or a face you understand or any of those things. It just takes it away. 
and says now without all the clothes of the, the, the of politics without the republican national committee with our, our gop and without the dnc these are costumes we take those away and we put them on another planet and they're just ideas now do you like us and that's what sci-fi does and people go well wait, wait, wait a minute yeah that is bad even though I've been told it isn't for the last 10 years. But I'm being told by guys I like that it isn't. And when you start taking away those guys and you just see the naked truth for what it is, as presented in a sci-fi, which is subjective, obviously, as some writer's truth. It's not universal truth, not physics. But nevertheless, people can change their minds or at least expand their minds. And that that's pretty powerful. And 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 if you can entertain... That's even better. Actually, entertaining is the most important thing. If you can edify, that's even better. I, I would have to draw the line. If it's not entertaining, I don't want it. All right. Well said. Well said. Uh, so on a lighter note, let's talk about some trick that is maybe not so heavy as we've been discussing for the past however long it's been. Uh, I got to ask about Move Along Home. And uh, that's one of my favorite episodes. I, I, just, I see the eye roll already. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So we got some good memories there. Awesome. It like... embarrassing. <laughs> you know I, I have a hot take about that episode i actually think it's pretty good like maybe it's not one of the better ones but it's definitely not the worst episode of star trek i mean what, what's your take on that let's just start there i don't have an opinion on the episode itself because uh, i never saw it but i do remember dancing this dance for hours and that was excruciating if i'm make, if i've got the right episode we, we we do this dance don't we mm-hmm. and um that was ex- that was painful. I mean, that painful to the point where we felt we couldn't stop. We couldn't stop cracking up. We couldn't stop laughing. We couldn't get through it. Avery, Avery, you know, one of those dignified, powerful men who's reduced to going, ha, 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 and it was really for us in the moment because there's none of the. It, it's not edited. It's just you know, basically naked acting. Obviously, we're clothed, but just naked. Um, it lo- it looks it looks silly. Uh, and we just had to totally trust the director to go, you know, we'll get it. Don't worry. By the time we finished, it'll look okay. It'll look okay. And we're like, this sucks. This dance sucks. Isn't there a better dance we could do? And uh, that is my only memory of filming it because we were all so embarrassed about it. It's like kids being, you know, forced to perform for their grandparents. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> Excellent way um, of putting it. Yeah. And when you guys, I don't know if you remember, when you guys like first saw the script, were you just like, what the heck is this garbage? Or, or were you just like, all right, let's see if it gets better maybe when it comes time to shoot? Do you, do you recall any No, no. No, we liked it. I, I never thought something, was, I never thought scripts were garbage. I, all scripts were great. I, the dance is fine print. You don't know that's going to be that excruciating until you do it. It's like, and they do this dance and it's fine. It's cool. Okay. That could be fun. But then when you do it, it's like, Oh my goodness, it's terrible. Um, no, I loved every script. I mean, I didn't have a judgment like that on any script. I never went, Oh, this sucks. Um, that wasn't my job. My job was, I was paid to, to execute those scripts. Um, and, uh, to judge them is someone else's job. And uh, that was usually a script editor or a producer and then a critic. Uh, so that would, that my job is always I, as an actor choosing a role, I will, cho- I'll, I'll decide whether a script sucks or not. Um, and then, but then I don't do it if I don't like it, but I'm, I said, I do Bashir. I said, I do deep space nine and you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, you don't look up, you do your job and you do it to the best of your ability. And you don't question the scripts. Um, you question little bits because you're a prima donna, niggly, whiny little actor. And you go, I would never say this. 
this is a terrible line. But you never judge the whole script in, in a negative or positive way. I mean, you can say, you did, we did say things were terrific sometimes. Um, but that was nothing. None, I don't remember anybody who ever did that about any script. Um, because they're denigrating to the writers and we knew how hard they worked. And then you've interviewed them on this show. So, and you've interviewed people, backroom staff and how hard they work. So if we're whining about with the, we've had all, we had all the power, you know, um, we literally had the power to have someone fired if we decided to. No one, thank God, did that. But that's how much power we had um, because we were too valuable to the franchise. But um, the minute we start saying bad things about the script, morale would just go flat because all those people making stuff for the sets, making coffee for the, the cast and crew, making dinner for when we get to got to dinner time, and no, including the, the filmmakers themselves, the technicians. They didn't need to hear any of that rubbish. So I can't get the image out of my head right now of Avery Brooks doing Al Moraine, Count Two Four. You, you know the whole thing. But uh... he just, he was ready to strangle someone. I was as far away from his arm's length as I could be because I was mo- the most likely stranglable candidate in the room. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm a big fan of Avery, though. He is my favorite actor in terms of the uh, captains who have been on Star Trek. Like, I love Avery. Uh, yeah, I've wonderful. heard from people who've been on the show that very much, uh, you know, he kind of set the tone for the show. Like, you know, he was really the captain of the ship and everybody kind of went in line with him. Yeah. I don't remember what kind of environment was uh, with him. And especially when he was directing, I mean, how, how was he when he was kind of uh, behind the scenes in, in those roles? He is a very serious individual, very, uh, I would say professional, but it's not that it kind of, it's above professional. It's deeply serious human being. Um, who is incredibly well-read, very knowledgeable about uh, especially African-American issues, but also Shakespeare. I mean, he teaches uh, at university uh, or did at Rutgers, I believe, Rutgers. And we had other people who were very similar. So we had uh, René Aubergenois, the late René Aubergenois, and uh, Armin, all of whom were very serious actors. They they never fooled around. I mean, if Siroc and myself and Terry maybe, you know, we were probably pliable if if they had been like the next generation cast who kind of had a lot of fun all the time uh we'd have been a very different show but avery set the tone and was like no we're here to work guys and there's no dicking around you know you're not gonna listen we're not playing any practical we're not wasting time we've got to get back to our families and uh we're here to do this work and let's go so there was it wasn't that he was a killjoy it just that was the tone it was like you go into a, a, a factory where the person on, you know, the 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 the, the foreman on the on on the on the floor is jokey, and everybody's having a giggle, and you, you get a little bit less work done. <laughs> but if you're really serious and focused, then you don't. You just get on with it, and you wait to have fun afterwards. And so we had a lot of questions back in the day because at the conventions, which kind of irked us, because the next generation were such practical jokers. They even came on our set in Practical Joke. They'd come on and sing stuff behind the, behind the psych. And we get questions about, like, so what Practical Jokes do you do? What's the, what's, what, what's the funny stuff you do? And it was embarrassing after a while because we just like, well, we don't really, we're not funny. We don't do any funny stuff. Because the, the next generation raised the expectation of all these fans to think that we're, we're going to get some juicy stories where someone got ice cream in the face or, you know, dog poop <laughs> somewhere else. <laughs> And that just wasn't us. And Avery set that tone. And the, the senior actors like Renee and Avery and Armin, they set that tone. 
Uh, Avery got to direct, uh, Renee got to direct, Andy Robinson directed also, and you directed two episodes of DS9 as well. Yeah. Well, they were directing you, essentially. Did, did you pick up anything from them that you used on your episodes? I don't think so, no. But I, I, I was far too up my own rear end to to be picking up anything from anyone else about directing. I thought I was the best director that ever lived. And, that, you, know, the, you know, David Lean might be able to sit on my lap if he asked politely. Um, but uh, the and because uh, I wanted, I've been I'd been a director for many years, and I'd had a theatre company before and stuff like that. And to me, d- directing Deep Space Nine was just swinging a camera around. So, but uh, so I I wasn't a good example. But Avery um, was probably in the top two directors, best directors we had on the show. I'd say um, the shows he did uh, far beyond the stars. There's several. Um, I think he was the most trusted actor director, um, like like um, Jonathan Frakes, you know, the really deep thinking, good director. Um, Rene was terrific. I don't think he liked the experience very much. Um, uh, Andy was terrific, um, and I'm not sure. Yeah, he enjoyed thoroughly enjoyed the experience. He's actually a, a, a very distinguished director now. Um, and uh, there's a, I mean, a lot of us did. It was a kind of perk, um, but I made I screwed up a show called Profit and Lace so badly they went, "Look, you're not doing this again," because I just did whatever I felt like. I was so arrogant as a 31 year old, whatever, that I just went, "Well, you know what? This is supposed to be funny, but I'm going to make it sad." And you don't do that on Star Trek. The writers don't like it when you do that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that episode up, actually, because we just interviewed Armin Shimmerman, and he was telling us about a scene uh, that he, it was with your episode where it was him and Cecily Adams together, and they said it was, like, super real, super serious, and then it got cut because they said it was too serious and too real. Yeah. Well, I I mean, to be honest, um, Armin really despised that episode, and quite rightly, because but I, I didn't have any chance. I didn't have any way of – normally you get some kind of edit, some form of – but they t- took that away. So I have absolutely no control over all this footage I'd filmed, which is a problem because, of course, it's going to arrive at the editor's door without context. You're not going to know what I was aiming at, what I was trying to do. I'd done a pretty good episode before that, and I think it was described by by at least one executive as one of the best debut episodes he'd seen. Um, I'd had real problems to deal with, and we dealt with it all really well, and we got a good show out at the end of the day. A decent show, put it that way. I wouldn't go so far as to say good so profit and lace was really me exercising what i thought thought was the director's prerogative and that is to decide how to interpret a scene and how to, and how to let the actors get to where they need to get to it turns out that any depth I, and i was really searching for depth in in armin's character in in quark especially with his mother uh um the late great cecily and and if if i would and, and there was a moment where it could happen. It was a moment of high tension and it was very slapstick as written. And I thought, well, you know, you can get to a place of slapstick and if through the opposite, from the opposite direction. You don't have to do it just to be funny. You can do it to expose a tragedy, a tragic relationship between these two people. Things aren't going quite as well as that was my intent. It was a, it was a naive and foolish idea because the writers don't like you to start making those decisions <laughs> and certainly on deep space nine um as an actor for your own role sure make that decision they'll cut it if they want to 
But obviously, without all of that information, without that geometry, the scene makes no sense. And we had wonderful actor from Laughing. I can't remember his name because I'm not American, so it's not a household name for me. But that famous actor from Laughing or Laughing or whatever they call it, um, and he was there, and he was terrific. Um, and we had Wallace Shawn, and all, you know, we had this crack squad of Ferengi. Um, and I just wanted to mine a bit more out of it, as opposed to because I, I guess I thought that it was just funny all the time and it, it seemed to be to be there were unmined depths of personality especially relationships with moms which are complicated and, and that that needed to, needed to go but i chose the wrong horse and i shouldn't have done it because uh, they slapped me down so somewhere out there is the director's cut version of this episode which is going to be oh, a no. pretty one they would have burnt that up really quickly <laughs> leave no evidence no gloves <laughs> at the scene uh, I'm a Star Trek collector of various things. I've got some Eagle Moss hero collector ships, uh, but my main thing is really action figures. And you have several from Playmates and from Art Asylum. I'm curious what your thoughts were of your very first action figure. It was thrilling to have an action figure made because uh, that seemed like only, you know, supermodels and Barbie got that ha- happened to them. I'm sure Barbie's around going, I've got lots of action figures, wherever real Barbie is. Um, but uh, I... Event, then I noticed that this one was really white. <laughs> they faded me. They color faded me to match the, 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 the expectations of the audience. So I thought it was pretty patronizing. Um, I didn't really need to do that. Um, and then I think they kind of tried to adjust it later. But he was white and, and muscular, neither of which I am. Um, so I suppose I should be flattered. <laughs> Yeah, I can tell you that that first wave of DS9 figures, everybody was too pale, uh, including Captain Sisko, or at that point, Commander Sisko. Uh, but everybody did get more accurate skin colors a little bit later on. So that at least Yeah, they had remedied. people come in with Pantone color charts to, uh, to match up our faces. And then I know someone um, higher up went, take it down a couple of notches. He's a little too dark. Do you collect any of your own merchandise that has your face on it? I had I would I got whatever I got free. So they they gave me stuff. Um, they give usually give us a box every year of whatever's going on. Selected. They didn't give us everything. Um, they give us dolls. Nearly all the action figures. Sorry, terminology. Um, they gave us those, um, and I got that. Um, and I I think they 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 hung in my kitchen for a few years. And uh, that would be kind of a, a source of amusement for people, especially the young children, like my niece and nephew, who are like, I'm smacking Sid against the kitchen counter. Bang, bang. I'm smacking Sid against the kitchen counter. And they're like, yeah, no, you can do that. Um, so that, uh, other than that, I would give everything away because there were all these opportunities to give stuff away and people really liked it. So especially mint bits and pieces with low numbers. So one of my personal favorite episodes about Dr. Bashir is one of the ones that's actually fairly early on in the series. And that's the one Melora, where you and Daphne Ashbrook are together. A really great episode. I think it's one that kind of very much fleshes out the character of Dr. Bashir and shows more of the human side to this guy. It's all about frontier medicine. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about working with Daphne Ashbrook? She was just lovely. I mean, I dated her, you know, we fell in love. And um, that was because obviously I thought she was terrific. And... um, as a lot of these things go, it didn't last all that long, um, really long by normal Hollywood standards, <laughs> which is like, let's get married. Let's get divorced tomorrow, which is really puzzling about Hollywood. Um, she's just she's just a really down to earth, lovely person. Um, 
and um i just thoroughly enjoyed working with her it's it's difficult to put my finger on exactly what the chemistry was but it was a it was a it was a really i really was interested by the episode because it it set up a couple of paradoxes that kind of I, I was I found fascinating as the medical from a medical point of view in Star Trek, not from a real medical point of view, but that in this supposedly utopian time when we have answers for just about everything, we have a disabled person we couldn't fix. And I know I was having a talk with someone who represents a disabled community the other day, and she said, "Well, you know what? Disability always wins. It doesn't matter how far we get, how many cool gizmos you have to fix someone in a second." disability will find a way to win this war something will always break us which is very wise and sobering thought that we aren't that the top of nature the na- nature's food chain and and probably never will be even in in the far reaches of the 24th century um and that was i kind of that was something i didn't understand when we were filming it but um because i was too busy gazing at daphne ashbrook uh, but it's certainly something I understand now. And I thought it was a really, it's a really nice piece of work um, that Star Trek t- paid attention to. I wish it had gone on a bit longer. I think there was a ten- an intention to make it a long-term relationship. But as with all things Bashir, oh, don't bet on it. Um, you know, any woman who gets any, got anywhere near Bashir, um, you can pretty much guarantee you're not coming back because he struck out more often than he did anything else. Um, so I just like the fact that we attempted broached breached the sub broached excuse me broached the subject, and um, I think it was a subject that needs to be talked about even more today. And this is twenty five years ago. And we're still not really sure what we make of you know disability. We're still not very good at giving them any money, for example, if they can't work. And I think they get something in the region of four hundred bucks a month or something ridiculous. As, as that's how they they got to live off that, and they can't work. It's not like hey, go get a job. It's like, no, can't get a job. Um, obviously, there are various different kinds of disability. But it's a high, I'm really glad we talked about it, and it's high time it gets talked about again. I hope they talk about it in some other iteration of Star Trek, some other comfortable way of talking about something uncomfortable. So of the many guest stars that you've worked with on DS9, did you have one that you really gelled with the most, besides Daphne, I guess, in this case? Uh, anyone who really, really appreciated working with and really got a lot out of you on screen? Well, Daphne for sure, but I don't think that was because she got a lot out of me on screen. Um, uh, cheeky, cheeky. <laughs> I think it was, she didn't get anything. I don't want to insinuate that she got money or anything out of me. Um, that's not the case at all. Um, I I think it would have to be Andy Robinson. I mean, he wasn't, he was a recurring, I know, but not, not a guest, but he just opened the door for Bashir, didn't he? I mean, he just goes, he, I mean, he, even though no one knew it at the time, Nobody would have guessed. It was just a scene, two people talking at a replimat, Bashir looking a little uncomfortable, but kind of giggly and giddy. That was a door that opened to a whole world of fan appreciation that has only really just been admitted to by anyone senior enough to make that, that admission. It opened the world to a whole gay fantasy that, that emerged as a result of that, which I think was so healthy. Um, it emerged, it opened the world to a lot of uncomfortable people finding comfort and solace in, 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 and, and what that ultimately does is make it educate me. So as an actor, it makes me always try and keep my options open in terms of what I do on screen, try, try and, and that's why you were talking sometimes about 
ambiguity in the characters I've been lucky enough to play. And that particular facet has been invaluable. And I don't think I could have done it. Had, I, I know it wouldn't have happened had not been that quirk of fate that Andy hovered around me in such a way on this in the replica map and that the tiny little corner of the set with a little plant in front of me um, when I was young enough to be flustered by that kind of male attention, flustered and engaged at the same time, that it became a it became the start of a trope, a thing, a, a whole subplot that just created vast amounts of fan fiction. And I don't care if you, you know, homophobic. Too bad. This was fascinating, and I think even even the staunchest homophobe out there will go yeah you know what yeah i'll give you that you can you can do that uh, that's okay um and i i think that was pretty great so that taught me a lot about ooh, i can be this subtle Andy can be this subtle and they pick it up wow you pick that up because primetime tv wasn't doing that um primetime tv was doing you know gorgeous jason Priestley bearing his pectorals and whoever the women on Bay, Baywatch were bearing their pectorals. And it was like, that's that's pretty sucky. This is a bit more interesting. And I think that's the, the core group of, of fans probably really appreciated all that stuff and probably still do. Yeah, subtlety is a great word to use with Andrew Robinson's performances. And even just watching it now, to this day, even though I know what's going to happen next in the show, the way he does everything is just so secretive and makes you want to know so much more about him. But you don't. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I love that you guys also these days are doing uh, your Sid City shows and you're reading yeah. fanfics together. That's that's pretty fun. Yeah, it's great fun. We're doing it now and it's great. We're, we're really enjoying it. It's again fan fiction. We're just bringing it to life um, in a really, you know, unflat, un, 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 un glamorous way. Um, you know, I just have a black curtain, no makeup, and it's got no makeup. We just and we read it because we can't learn it. There's no way we can learn it in time. And um, it's just a fan deciding this is how the canons. How about this? What if it was like this? Um, and it's been. I think people who watching have watched it have found it quite amusing, really entertaining, especially now when it's really dark early. And um, but unfortunately, right now, if you want to see that stuff, you have to watch it live. Because um, we haven't negotiated to put it on with the union to put it on YouTube, which is a slightly more ambitious. We did the first lot because we just didn't know better. Um, but we're doing this just live. And we hopefully between and anybody who wants to object can object if they want to. And we give them time to do that. But I'm hoping that everybody will go, yeah, you know what? This is useful. And it's not really threatening our product. <laughs> there is no harm because um, everyone's so respectful of the canon. Um, apart from anything else, both Andy and I and Armin and Nana and everyone else really are protective, fiercely protective of their characters because uh, they love them. So I don't think anything silly is going to happen. So, Alexander, we know what you left behind, but what did you take with you? And in particular, I'm talking about the last day you were on the DS9 set. Did you take any souvenirs with you? I took my costume. Uh, th- we were told not to take anything. Um, so and I was really goody two shoes and if someone tells me not to steal anything i'm not stealing anything but i remember my uh my the co- the costume my costume person saying oh, you take this it's yours no one else is gonna wear it no one else fits into it You're too damn thin so uh i took my costume in a plastic bag and my boots and the only thing i have left is my boots 
And the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> the rest is history. <laughs> so, Alexander, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Oh, easy. The people. All the people. Not just the actors. Um, the people I've got to know since. Uh, the fans I meet in my social club. The people who are accidental Trek fans who, or not even fans, just people who, who come into, the, into my orbit because of Trek. Um, I'm not usually a people person, but my goodness, I do like people, which is a bit of a paradox. That's a pretty perfect answer, I'd say. Uh, and you know, thank you for being enough of a people person today to want to talk to me, because I know you've been doing a lot of interviews today to promote Skylines. Uh, so yeah, I appreciate so much the time you've had and how generous you've been all your stories and all your information. And again, for folks who are listening today, December 18th, you can check out Skylines. We're going to have links to where you can watch that. So make sure you check out the show notes if you want to check it out. And I do suggest that you do take a look at Skylines. Uh, so, Mr. Sadig, thank you so much again. It's been wonderful. Uh, hopefully, I can see you at Star Trek Vegas 2021. Fingers crossed it happens. Fingers crossed. Thank you. And I hope you'll enjoy Skylines. I certainly did. And it was a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. That was our chat with Alexander Sadig, and we covered a lot of ground in this short time we had with him today. And I'd love to spend some more time talking with him about his career and all sorts of other things. After all, I did this entire interview without even mentioning once that his uncle is Malcolm McDowell, a.k.a. Dr. Soren from Star Trek Generations, a.k.a. the man who killed Captain Kirk. So, at the very least, there's plenty left behind for the sequel interview. And once again, don't forget to check out Skylines, which is available to see on December 18th. I'll make sure that links are updated in the show notes to reflect the different ways you can watch this fun sci-fi flick. One last note before I sign off, this episode is our final new interview of 2020, but don't worry, there's no trip to Riza plan for me, I'm not going on vacation or anything like that. Since the show has started to pick up some real steam in the past few months, in particular thanks to episodes like this with some of the leading men and women of Star Trek, I want to make sure new listeners can get easily caught up on some of the discussions we had with previous guests. So next week and the week after, I'm going to be a pair of highlight shows starting with some of my favorite guests from Star Trek The Next Generation we've had here in 2020, and then followed by the best of Deep Space Nine guests. Then in the first week of 2021, Trek Untold returns with the first of many new interviews, and we're coming in hot with this one, so make sure you check out the compilation episodes because I just might be dropping a few hints here and there to let you know who's going to be kicking off the new year with us. So get ready, get hyped. 2021 is going to be a big year for this podcast, and it's really thanks to listeners like you who have helped it continue to grow each and every week. So I hope that in the new year, we don't disappoint you and I hope we can make 2021 even bigger because we're going to bring you a lot of interviews with untold stories and in fact, some guests who haven't even done interviews in decades. So it's going to be a good one. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. Whether you're listening to this show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or any audio platforms or our YouTube channel, youtube.com Nerd News Today, please make sure you subscribe to whatever format you're listening to so you can ensure you get the new episodes of this show as soon as they come out. And that's every Thursday on audio platforms and every Sunday on YouTube for the video version. Please don't forget to check out our Teespring store to check out some of the merch we have for this show at teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold. You can also support this podcast by visiting patreon.com slash Trek Untold to become a Patreon. We've got a few different tiers that offer some different benefits that you might enjoy, so please take a look if you can. If you want to get updates on who's going to be on the newest episode of the shows, please follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at Trek Untold. That's one word, no spaces, Trek Untold. But one of the biggest things you can do to help out this show is to interact with us. 
whether that's leaving a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast, or leaving a comment or giving it a thumbs up on YouTube. It costs you nothing but time and helps out this show tremendously to get more attention and get more listeners to help this podcast continue to grow and expand. So until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz. This has been Trek Untold. And remember, fortune favors the bold.